We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. The views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of Intercom Communications staff, management, or sponsors. Now, here's your host, Sue Henry. On today's show, we'll listen to the stories of three individuals who were in Scranton this week to give their first-hand accounts of the horrors of the Holocaust during World War II. Young people from school districts across northeastern Pennsylvania had the unique opportunity this week to hear the stories of men and women, now in their 80s and 90s, who were eyewitnesses to one of history's darkest times. According to the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, there were 9 million Jews in Europe in 1933. By the time World War II ended in 1945, nearly two out of three died at the hands of Germany's Nazi regime and its accomplices. Judged to be racially inferior, they were rounded up from their homes and taken to various concentration camps, where families were separated and the weak were murdered quickly. Those who lived existed in squalor. The survivors of this ordeal are dwindling these days. However, some who witnessed this brutal chapter in the world's history are insistent their testimony is heard firsthand by those who will hopefully retell it in the future. This week in Scranton, the 29th Annual Teen Symposium on the Holocaust brought together students, survivors, and liberators. Some of the students attending were the same age as the speakers were when they were spirited from their homes by German soldiers and their lives were upended forever. The keynote speaker for this event was a former attorney who is just weeks shy of his 91st birthday. Retired Staff Sergeant Alan Moskin of Rockland County, New York, served in the Army from September of 1944 until August of 1946. He was a member of the 66th Infantry, 71st Division, part of General George Patton's 3rd Army. He was involved in many combat missions during his service. But the most difficult part of his tour was on May 4, 1945, when he and his comrades liberated the Gunskirchen concentration camp. He told us about that experience. Once you hit 18, every male got a notice called a draft notice. That meant you reported for a physical exam. And if you passed the physical, you went into the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, or depending. And they asked you what your choice was, but usually they put you where they wanted to. I wanted to get in the Navy, but they stamped me for Army. I never forgot that. I was up at Syracuse University at the time. I had started Syracuse when I had just turned 17. The one year later, when I hit 18, I got my notice and... Went down to Camp Blanding, which is the northern part of Florida, for three months of infantry basic training. Now, I was, uh, you know, an athlete, a, I think not to say all-American boy, but I've been around and stuff. As a, but I never had a gun in my hand, so I was learning how to shoot an M1 rifle and a machine gun and stick a bayonet in somebody's belly was a whole new experience. I learned, and I picked it up fast, and uh, went, went overseas in a Liberty Ship convoy. 
Uh, everybody was deathly seasick. I don't want to, I'll get nauseous even talking about it. <laughs> it was like rowboats in the ocean for 11 or 12 days. I found out later that some of the guys went over on the Queen Elizabeth or the Queen Mary. I said, oh boy, did I lose out on that one. But landed in Liverpool, England, went across the channel into France, went into a replacement camp where they send you up, you know, to the front lines, the various outfits. And I went up to join the 66th Infantry Regiment, part of the 71st Division, which is also part of the famous Third Army, led by Old Blood and Guts, our blood and his guts, General George S. Patton. He was a little flaky, because my, my captain used to speak to me, yeah, since I had some college. He used to always call me over to vent a little bit when Patton would come up. And he used to call me over and say, you know what the old man said to me today? College boy was my nickname. College boy? He said, Captain, you're looking at Napoleon reincarnate. I'm Napoleon. And I thought he was kidding it. But, but Patton really thought that he was some general that came back, and I didn't want to hear that. That's my general. I thought he was a little crazy, you know. We fought in heavy combat in the Rhineland campaign, the Central European campaign. and every one of these battles, I lost a lot of my close buddies that, I, again, I'm just one of the lucky ones. Uh, as I said all the time, uh, if it was 100 meters to the right or 100 meters to the left at any given time, I wouldn't be here. And I, for 50 years, I didn't speak to anybody. I had PTSD, but they didn't know what that was in World War II. They called shell shock. But after 50 years, I moved up to where I live now, in Rockland County from New Jersey. And a lady from the Holocaust Museum found out what I just told you and said to me, Mr. Moskin, is that true? Yes. Oh, we, oh boy, now I want you to speak to the middle school and high school students. I said, no, I'm not speaking originally. And then she kept pushing me. Please, please, it's so important. Let's try it once. If it's too much, I'll never ask to, for you to speak again. Spoke for the first time 50 years after the end of the war in Europe on June 10, 1995, over the Nanuet Mall there. And I was dead wrong. It was like a catharsis. It was like a purging of all the, you know, all the stuff I'd bottled up inside. It's like a calling with me now. I want to try to reach as many of these young students in particular. I do speak to adult groups, but mostly to the young group. I want them to know the truth about what happened back then because we have deniers, as you know, out there and denying that the Holocaust happened. And another 5, 10, 15 years when the hidden children, the survivors, the kinder transport, the Liberators like myself are gone. My daughters don't like me to talk like this, but let's be realistic. You know, this symposium is going to have trouble finding speakers in a number of years. We're getting older, and I'll be 91 in a few weeks, and I was a kid in the outfit. So my main goal is to make sure that what we experienced back then and some of these people that I speak with here today and at the symposium here in Scranton were survivors. They were very young. Uh, but we saw the hate and the losing of the... They, they lost their family members. Some of them had their family members wiped out. We got to make sure that that doesn't happen again. So three weeks before your 19th birthday, you <laughs> you walk into a situation. Today, people would say, oh, that's unbelievable, that you would have no knowledge that that was going on. But you walked into a situation that you had no knowledge of, right? President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the guys up top, they knew. They had to know about those camps because I found out later they were going up in the 30s and 40s. So, but we, on our level, my captain, my top, we didn't have knowledge. Kids asked me that a lot afterwards. I thought you went over to liberate the Jews from the camps. No, 
We didn't know. We know maybe he Hitler wasn't fond of Jews, but we know about concentration camps. Where we walked into that place, the smell, the stink, the bodies, the skeletal-like bodies, the sores all over the body, the filthy pajama-like things they had on. The, if they weighed 70 pounds, were all emaciated. We 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 were shocked because we I had seen combat, and I did my share of killing soldiers, but these were civilians. Any liberate the first thing, the stench at these from, from dead bodies and who who knows. It left a mark on me in my heart, my soul. I, I I I it's tattooed on there. I can't get rid of it and uh and I'm really so glad that after fifty years I finally started to speak. Last count I've reached over fifty thousand uh high school and college and uh middle school students and uh, you know I got I had a question the other some kids said to me Mr. Moskin how can anybody you say they, they say the Holocaust didn't happen uh, how do they say that because you got the testimony of you and so, so many other GIs Jews and Gentiles alike the Nuremberg war crimes trials which I attended wanting to be a lawyer and I wanted to see Robert Jackson our prosecutor in action, and I did go there three or four times. The photos of Eisenhower, Patton, and Bradley at Audra showing the bodies. I mean, how can people say it, uh, the Holocaust a myth? It did, I mean, does that, I said, I can't answer that question. I can only say to you, son, I guess there are some people that are so anti-Semitic that you could show them in black and white a thousand times. They'll still say the Holocaust didn't happen or the Jews made it up. So I don't even try to convince those people anymore. You know, it's a, it's a losing battle and uh, just a shame that there's still people out there that think that way. By the way, what date did you walk in and May where? 4th, May, May 4th. May 4th, 1945. And where did you walk in and what did you see that made you realize that something was terribly wrong? We're in the, we're in the woods, a forest. The first thing, what the heck is that? That smell. And then through the trees, I saw a barbed wire, a big, comp like a villa, a compound, whatever. That turned out to be the Gunskirchen Lager, which is a concentration camp, a sub-camp of Mauthausen in Austria. These big camps like Mauthausen and Auschwitzburg and uh, Bergen-Belsen, they, when they got filled up, they had these what they called death marches with the people going to what's like a satellite or a sub-camp. And, and Mauthausen had this sub-camp, Gunskirchen, Gusen, you know, I, I learned this later. I didn't know it at the time. I entered the camp, and uh, there were skeletal-like bodies on the left and the right. Those who were alive were so emaciated, it defies description. If they weighed 60, 70 pounds, they had these filthy rags that looked to me like pajamas, gray and white, you know, filth tops, bottoms. Couldn't, I couldn't distinguish genitalia. They all looked alike to me. A sores all over the body. Uh, lice crawling out of open... I mean, this is very graphic, but... The, I remember, my God, the lice crawling out of the bodies, dysentery, typhus all over the place. I remember my, my captain next to me screaming to the rear. They, you know, we had walkie-talkies there. My daughter said, they don't realize that. That was the communication, then, walkie-talkies. He couldn't get through, and he was screaming. on them, Get help up here, damn it. There's bodies all over. People are dying as I'm talking to you. Please get help. He couldn't get through, and he was getting... It was just so frustrating. And then I remember... Uh, this was also upsetting. They said, Essen bitte, Essen bitte, Wasser bitte, cigarette. cigarettes. I didn't, I didn't smoke, but I remember the guys handing out cigarettes. And they, instead of, they were going to light it for the, but they didn't want to smoke. They pulled the, the, the wrapping off and started eating and biting and chewing into the, you had to see it. I closed my eyes to remember the picture of people starving, what they did. 
And then I remember going to the barracks and couldn't stay in there. The stench was so bad, and people begging us for help. My buddies with Hilfen's me, help me, help me. They were so bony and starving. Couldn't stay in there. I went out screaming medics, and as I did, I saw a dead horse on the side of the road, three of these inmates with the bark of a tree, digging it into the entrails of a dead horse. And I'm watching, I'm pulling out the guts of a horse, I'm biting, but God help me, and the blood is squirting all over. And, and I'm gonna tell you what starvation does to people. It was, it was if I didn't see it, I wouldn't believe it. And I, that's the kind of things that I just can never forget. And uh, everywhere you looked in the Gunskirchen Lager, as I said all the time, everywhere you looked was the foul stench of the dead and the dying. And I, I just do the best I can. It's like trying to describe the indescribable, what I saw as a, as a still a young 18-year-old American soldier. And uh, it's something I can't forget, and I don't want the people that I speak to to forget it because these pe some of these people lost their lives, and I know a lot of survivors who lost their whole families. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really a, a, a tragic thing when I have to go back. And you know, we, we had one of the jobs we had after the war ended was to try to find out if some of these survivors, they didn't know where their parents were or their siblings were, if they were married. They were separated all over, and, the, and they give you some indication. And the Germans were very good on record keeping, which came back to Hornham. They were pretty good on keeping records. And I went with this captain, and we looked at mostly Auschwitz-Birkenau. Most of the news was all, you know, that we found. Their parents were dead. 90% was negative, or we couldn't and I had to go back and tell someone like a 14 or 15 year old that his whole family is gone and to see him fall on the ground and almost collapse. I mean, after what, it's like hitting him over the head with a hammer after they went through it. It was hard. My captain, he pulled rank on me. He said, college boy, that was my nickname. He said, I can't tell you, I can't do it, I can't tell you. So I'm gonna pull rank on you. It's gonna be your job to tell him. But I, that was one of my jobs to tell the people, and boy, I tell you, to tell somebody that your whole family is wiped out and you got nothing to go home to. And the only connection they would possibly have is they had a relative in the States or in England, Canada, or later in Israel. That's the way they would eventually get back. And when I see people, uh, Sue, if I make, Sue, if I see people today that have made a life in this country and got children, and Grant, I said to myself, after what they went through, they're elderly people now, but they, you know, it reminds me of, uh, I met, a, I met a, a, a lady when I went back to Europe, uh, what's the name? The March of the Living is a group of students that go, they wanted me to go as a liberator. This is in 2005, and they said uh, they wanted me to go back and show, and, but there wasn't much to show. I mean, how can you? I met a lady there when I mentioned I Gunskirchen. Well, my father was in Gunskirchen. You got to come up to Toronto and meet my father. And I said, well, finally she made the arrangement. I went up there. This is a number of years ago. Very emotional. Her father. He invited a couple other people who had been in Gunskirchen, and they were, you know, obviously so thankful. But what she said to me then, and I never thought of it this way, she said, you know, Alan, when you liberated my father, it wasn't just my father. You. I'm here because of you. My brother and sisters are here because of you. Our children are here because of you. And there's an expression, you save one, you save the world, or something like that. And I, I got very emotional because I never thought of it in terms of by liberating her father and, and others that it created a whole, you know, that they wouldn't be here. And uh, 
I thought of it later, oh my God, uh, you know, it, and I've seen other survivors of Gunskirchen since. There's actually one here uh, today, Mike Herskovitz, uh, with his wife from Philadelphia, and he was uh, about 15 then. It's always emotional when I see somebody from hellhole, as I call it, Gunskirchen. They lived through that, maybe they can live through anything, so. There's some good and bad, I guess, in everything, and I like to look more like at the good now that I was one of the lucky ones to be able to save some people. My only regret, I wish we could have got there sooner, you know, a few days sooner. Maybe we could have saved some more because they were, from malnutrition, even as we got there, people were, were dying, and I think I did the best I could, and uh, that's why, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to talk to the young people today and convey everything that I've just about told you now. And as my daughter says, if I, if I get one kid every time I speak, I'm ahead of the game. I hope I do better than that. But, uh, you know, sometimes you can't reach all these kids. I used to get hot under the collar when I saw a kid doze off in front of me. And I, you know, I'm, a, um, I'm ready to go. I get hot. But I, my daughter, Dad, you can't do it because you lose the whole group when you point out. So I'm not going to reach every kid. But I tell you, today when I spoke at this group in the big room here, I, I, I can tell now, I sense it. I looked around, I didn't see any yawning or any, they all looked like their eyes were wide open and I could see the, so maybe I'm reaching more kids now with the emotions and stuff and then they get up and give me a big hand and I, I, I like to think of the positives out of what I'm doing now and everybody's so nice here at, in Scranton. I've been here, as I said, for a number of years. They're so respectful and so cordial and, and I appreciate that very much. That's retired Staff Sergeant Alan Moskin, a World War II liberator. He spoke to students at the recent Teen Holocaust Symposium in Scranton. Coming up next on Special Edition, we'll hear the account of a woman who witnessed the horrors of four different concentration camps during the war. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. The Holocaust Symposium in Scranton brings together school students from northeastern Pennsylvania who learn the firsthand accounts of those who suffered the brutality of concentration camps, were hidden children during the war, or served in the military and became liberators. Lois Flemholtz of Monroe Township, New Jersey, was born in Czechoslovakia. Her experience includes her family being forced into a ghetto and then surviving four concentration camps prior to liberation by the British, from Bergen-Belsen. Lois spoke to us about the ordeal, which tore her family apart. I grew up in a small town in the Carpathian Mountains, and it belonged to Czechoslovakia till 1939, when it became part of Hungary. We lived there till 1944. In 44, It was a a jeep with four German soldiers came into our town. That's the first time I saw a German soldier. They stopped by the police station. They told the police to round up all the Jews, and we have to go to this big town, which was called Munkac, to a ghetto, because they said we're too close by the Polish border. The ghetto was an abandoned brick factory. They brought in from all the surrounding small towns into that, the people into that ghetto. In fact, my father had a sister and her whole family that lived entirely in a different area in a small town. They were brought to the same ghetto also. And it so happened that this aunt of mine 
had um, four daughters that were about my age. I was a little bit younger than the youngest one. I wasn't quite 16. I was 16 while I was in the concentration camp. In fact, there was even my my paternal grandparents lived with my aunt, and they were in the same ghetto also. My grandfather was 89, and my grandmother, I don't know, she must have been just a little bit younger than my grandfather. They came to the ghetto also, and they came with us to Auschwitz. We were in the ghetto for six weeks when they rounded up part of the ghetto and put us into kettle cars, and they said, we're going to a work camp. We traveled that day and overnight until we got to this place where they opened up the doors and started yelling, out, out, out. In fact, the kettle car, there was no room for anybody to move around. The older people were sitting on their bedding because we had all our possessions with us from the, you know, they took from home. And then they said to line up the men separate and the women separate. I have had a little sister who was 10 years old and two little brothers. One was six and one was three. In fact, I was holding my three-year-old brother and one of my cousins was holding her three-year-old brother because my grandmother was blind. So my mother and my aunt were walking with my grandmother so there were these men that were working, working at the train, taking the stuff off from the, from the train, were Jewish. And as they were walking, they whispered in Jewish, young girls, if you want to save your lives, put, your, put the children down. So we figured, you know, that maybe if they figured that the young girl had a child, you know, so that's why they would kill us, you know, for being, uh, you know, having, a baby. So of course the mothers right away, my mother took my little brother, my aunt took her little boy. As we were going, there stood this officer and was pointing. Didn't talk. That's how I was separated from my mother and sister and my brothers. And my cousins were also separated. So I was together with those four sisters my cousins. In fact, we went through the whole time we were together. I was first, you know, in Auschwitz. I was in Birkenau. And one time I worked with 19 other girls right near the crematorium. We were cleaning out a ditch. And they they had like, you know, like water running down a uh, thing and then they had to clean out the pieces of paper, whatever was dropped in there. The overseer over us was a Russian young prisoner of war. And I spoke Russian, so I befriended her. We were, you know, talking to her. And she was showing me, says, she's the number. She says, as long as you can get away, without getting a number, you have a chance of getting out of Auschwitz. Because she says she ran away already a couple of times, but because of the number that she has, they bring her back. But of course, she wasn't Jewish, so they couldn't kill her. She was a prisoner of war. While we were in Auschwitz, twice a day we had to stand up on lo- stand on line, 
and it was always they were always selection selecting selecting people. We never knew what the selection was for. In fact, that's how I found out that this officer's name was Dr. Mengele, because he came to make a selection, and I found out that there was Dr. Because I recognized him, he was the one that pointed to me, you know, where to go, and. I was in Auschwitz for about five weeks. As I said, twice a day, they would take us to a latrine. No showers, no water to drink. We were dying of thirst or anything, nothing. After five weeks, again, we were selected and we put back into a bathhouse. Because first of all, when we first came, we went to this bathhouse. Of course, we didn't know at that time that in the bathhouse, gas can come down instead of water. We just went to that bathhouse. We had to strip naked with these soldiers standing around watching us, you know, and young girls, 15. They shaved our heads, and then they gave everybody a gray dress. No underwear. And we marched into this camp that was called Birkenau. In fact, when we got there, there were these, other, these women that were taking care of the barracks. They were there from 39. So we were crying, we want to see our parents, we want to see our parents. So they were saying, on Saturday, Sunday you're going to be able to see them. Then one of them who was mean, very mean, she says, oh, you want to see your parents? You see the smoke over there? That's where your parents are. That's how we found out about the crematorium. So as I said, I was there five weeks. So soon after that, there was a selection again, and we were again brought into the bathhouse, given another gray dress, put on a train, and went to a work camp. In the work camp, it was like heaven. When we got there, there were showers there. There were bathrooms because it used to be a military compound. And not only that, but we had, see like in the bunk beds, we were 13, 12 or 13 girls on one bunk. No, uh, nothing on the, on the boards, it was just boards. Whereas when we got to the work camp, everybody got a single bunk bed with two blankets, one foot at the bottom and one to cover yourself. It was like heaven, but we worked hard. I was picked in with the group. They brought us into a forest. We had to cut down all the trees, trim them. Then they came and they hauled away the trees and they brought in rocks. And they gave us certain hammers to break up those rocks into small pieces to build a road. And when we finished building the road, there was uh, like a hill. We had to dig, you know, cut, dig that on that hill and make, you know, straighten out the, the ground, you know, to, because they were, we were going to build a railroad. But we struggled, but that's what we did. And when we finished building the railroad, we started building a factory. And then, February 1st, they announced that the Russians are not too far away. We have to leave the camp. So we left on, on February 1st. 
we left the camp and we started marching 30 kilometers a day. The first night, we got to a town where they had some barns and some, you know, some haylofts, and that's where they put us out. The second night, the, the one that was leading us, you know, one of the German soldiers, uh, so he was in charge of the other soldiers. He couldn't find any barns or anything. So there was an open field, and he brought us up and then brought us on that open field, and it was pouring outside. So we slept, didn't sleep, we sat, you know, huddled together. And I even sat, I still remember, I, rem I knew that February 2nd was my mother's birthday. And I said to my cousins, if I survive tonight, I will survive the war because my mother is watching over me. So as I said, we marched like that for six weeks. I saw most of Czechoslovakia on foot. I saw part of Germany on foot. One day we were on a hill overlooking a town which was called Dresden, and we were watching the bombs falling on the, on the town. We could see, we could recognize the planes, flags on the planes that it was American flags. You know, that's how close they were. Do you think that we worried that a bomb can go astray and hit us? Didn't care. We were watching, we were laughing and watching, we were happy they're bombing the, the town. Because we could hear the people running and screaming, you know, as the bombs were falling. We were standing and watching it. As I said, as a part of Germany, in the meantime, as I said, it was in the winter time, and we always slept in haylofts. Of course, we never had a shower for those six weeks. We never had any place where to wash up even or anything. And we got to this farm, wherever we stayed in the haylofts, you know, where they put us up. If the farmer was nice, he boiled some potatoes, and we got a boiled potato. If the farmer wasn't pleasant, then the one that was leading us would make them give us some potatoes. We would eat a raw potato, no, because we had to have some nourishment. In fact, the, uh, the one that was leading us, the head, he was decent also. That's why when I had one time, <clears throat> I spoke in a Catholic school in New, in New Jersey, one of the kids asked me, do I hate all the Germans? And I said, no because there were some good ones. I said there were good Germans and there were bad Germans. There are good Jews and bad Jews. There are good Catholics and bad Catholics. It doesn't, can't, you know, doesn't mean because some of them were mean that I would hate all the Germans. I said, no, I don't. We marched like that. A lot of people, they couldn't continue walking. They were killed and left right there in the street till we got to Bergen-Belsen. We got to Bergen-Belsen. First day, I don't know what happened, but what kind of soup it was. I spoiled my stomach, and I got sick. In fact, one of we had, there was a Czech a doctor, you know, a woman that was in our transport, and she said she thought I had uh, yellow jaundice. But I asked the doctor here, and he said no, it was just for malnutrition but I couldn't stand up for when we had to be counted. Two people had to hold me up, like one from either side, because I said if I go to the hospital, to the infirmary, I'm not gonna come out. So people were helping me. 
So we were liberated by the English, and when we were liberated, everybody, they, they gave us, you know, the, what is it, the conserve, conserve, you know, the cans of uh, meat, whatever, you know. It's more grease than anything, and everybody got very sick. And that's when I lost a lot of my friends, because they were just, you know, they were eating that, and they got sick. One after the other was dying. So that's what I said. I said, that's where I was liberated. From there, we went to a hospital. We took us to a hospital. Uh, two of my cousins were very sick by then, so they went to one hospital. And my other cousin and I, uh, two of my other cousins and I, went to a different hospital. And that's where the oldest one, as I said, died in my arms the day the war ended. While we were in that, in that camp, we found out that the two that are still in the hospital are being sent with the Red Cross to Sweden. So we were able to get permission to go back and this is how I went with my cousins to Sweden. I was there two and a half years, because it took me a long time. I knew my mother had two brothers in America. Their last name was Singer. Now, Sweden has telephone books from America, and I looked for Singer, pages and pages of Singer. Go know which is my uncle's. Luckily, after a long time, by accident, I have somebody that found them for me, and then my uncles brought me to America. And when I came here, they picked me up at the ship, and one of them took me to the Bronx by subway. And we got out of the subway, the snow was piled up this high, the garbage burning on top of the snow. I said, this is America, I'm going back to Sweden. <laughs> So my uncle said, rest in peace, he was so good to me. He took me the next day to Times Square to show me that not all Americans like the Bronx. <laughs> so while I was there, I went to night school to learn English, of course. I met my husband and got married. I have three children, five grandchildren, and I have 10 great-grandchildren now. So I'm very happy to be here, and that's, that's my story. <laughs> that's Lois Flemholtz of Monroe Township, New Jersey. Coming up next on Special Edition, we'll meet a man who was living a regular life with his family in Czechoslovakia until the Germans appeared suddenly in his family's village and changed their lives forever. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. In the 1940s, as the influence of the Germans spread through other countries, the first time Jews knew something was terribly wrong was not from a newspaper or the radio, but from the appearance of soldiers in their towns. In the spring of 1943, the family of Michael Herskovitz was forced from their home with very few belongings, beginning their nightmare at the hands of their captors. Michael spoke to students at the 29th Annual Teen Symposium on the Holocaust in Scranton, and he told his story to us. I was born in Czechoslovakia. Wonderful parents, a wonderful home, everything. Till when I was 14, the Germans just wandered into the village. I mean, nobody even knew 
who is it, what is it. They just came in, I mean, two or three. We had a village by itself. We had a grocery store. But usually in a village with all non-Jews, there's always a Jewish family with some business. So we had the grocery store, and they used one day they came in. And now I realized that during the day that German soldiers walking in the village back and forth. And one day they came into the store, which my father was there, my mother was there. It was like a family store, you know, for the village. And they took merchandise from the shelf. And my father approached them. And they walked out and said, gentlemen, you got to pay for it. They grabbed him, put him behind the building and beat him up. A week or ten days after, we closed the door. We never had a problem in the village. Everybody loved us. I went to school with the regular kids. That time, I just go back 80 years, there was no difference between Jews and non-Jews. One early Saturday morning, when the story began, they walked in to make, they knew exactly which one is a Jewish home. In the village, only two Jewish homes were. We were one, one saw the, my uh, uncle. Uh, they walked into the store, they knocked at the door, they came in, and they just said to us, to mom, my father, was in the back room, you know, that we gotta keep moving on. Wake up the family and dress them as much as you want because you can only take with you 30 kilos. And they came up with a story Always with a positive story. The German students, the entire Czechoslovakia, they came in. They didn't even shot one bullet because they just had to go on through. Then mom took, that time was no suitcases, you know. Mom took a pillowcase. Early in the morning was your dog. Woke us up, took a pillowcase, impact stuff, and gave us put on two shirts, two pairs. We walked out. And a farmer with a carriage traded for you, and they took us to an empty field, which was surrounded, three feet high fence, and we got tents, like you know, when you go camping. And we didn't know my father, and nobody knew anything. They were not the German soldiers, you know. They picked people from the area to watch us. And uh, yeah, they, and there was the ghetto. You heard from ghetto, so we were there for a while, and then they drove us over with the carriage to a railroad station. At the railroad station, there were five or six or more cars. Like you see, the, they took us over there, there was a cars, and put us in the cars. After the cars, I don't know many, six or ten, whatever, after the cars filled up, train came by, because usually there is two lanes, Name came by, they connected to the car, and we continued going. Nobody knew anything where it was going. The train kept going, stopped every station, and by that time, Jewish people were already in the, packed in the train, just connected and keep going. Train became a long train. We arrived to Auschwitz. As the train stopped in Auschwitz, nothing but screaming, Holland's a long train, screaming, hollering, crying, mother screaming, because right there, they separated. As you come off, man, 
totally to the right, next to the the handicapped, you know, pregnant lady, grandma, grandpa, every one of them that was not capable, they looked at it, to work, were separate. So we were alone. We were the girls, the ladies, then we were the men's, and then were the handicapped. My mom had a four-year-old boy, brother, they literally walked up to your lady and grabbed the child, the baby, out of your head. Now, you know, a lot of moms really were strong, screaming, hollering, they didn't want to give it to her. So they thought, you know what? Come on, let's go with the child. Mom usually goes with the child. I grew up in a farm, so I was pretty solid. Also, I went, we went with 34 teenagers for a big separate and put on the side next to the man. Yeah? But otherwise, and, and then, as we, I forgot, as we walked in, we walked into a true building. On the right side, there were long tables, like picnic tables, six foot, eight foot. So on the tables were jacket and pants. Jacket, pants, the striped one. So you've seen it. They threw a jacket. We walked through to the building. They cut our hair. There were barbers from Poland, transferred before. All over, we were nude, cut the hair, every part of our body. They started to get dressed. We started getting dressed. They said to us, if the clothes doesn't fit, you look around you. There are hundreds. And exchange your clothes. So I look around a gentleman, too small, but 20 feet. I walk up to the gentleman, gave him my clothes. He gave me his. I put his on, he put my son. It was the last time I seen my father when I let his hand talk. You know, it's just like a museum park. Then you couldn't holler, because the minute you open your mouth, the black stick, and, and they put us in a barracks. The barracks had 32 bunk beds, 16 on one side, 16 on the other side. In the middle, you had like a walkway, could go. Then they closed the gate. They all of them had gates, right? They all, we stood there. We stood there. At night, far night, came the food. So in the morning, we walked out. They gave us, they had to stay in line for food. And we, they took big ones growing up when they took to work. We teenagers were used. Each barrack had concrete floor. And we were used, they gave us a hose, washed the floor with a squeegee, squeegeed it. That was our teenagers' job. Till one day, they didn't have enough workers to send to work. And again, I guess I grew up in a farm, and for my 14 years, I'm pretty tall, and solid, they picked me three times to go with the workers. As we walked in at the gate, big gate, the truck was backed up. We had to jump up on the truck. There were two Germans soldiers with two German dogs, jumped up, and they drove us to work. We went to work to a farm that time. The farm, the truck stopped. As you stopped at the farm, there were wheelbarrows, empty wheelbarrows. The field was downhill, elevated, you could see down. The two German soldiers, the two German shepherds, they were on the top just walking back and forth and looking at all the old Jewish people who they pushing the wheelbarrow. I was up the hill and one soldier says to the other one, look at him, he's not pushing the real ballast tongue. 
és de az a szódja poligon and sudden. What I bring up to the kids, they did not have to have an excuse. Any camp, other camp, shoot you to kill you, beat you, whatever. As long as 20 or 25 people came in the morning with the drug, 25 had to go back. That's what happened every day. As many they left had to go out, okay? So we, we just went, I went work, then we went back, and you seen in any camp, they beat you to death, they shoot you, didn't mean nothing, you know? Didn't mean nothing. So from there on, I was in Auschwitz for a few months. I went to work, went back to work, but we got food, but I right there already knew that I don't believe we ever gonna go back home. I seen the big chimney with the flame, we asked the couple. The couple was someone that did the dirty work. Not the German soldiers, the couples, they had every morning a meeting, they were told how many gotta die, how many gonna live, and they they did the dirty job, okay? For most weeks, we went to drive, walk to Mauthausen, another camp, from Mauthausen we walked to Gunskirchen. Gunskirchen, in my eyes, if you ever put it in the newspaper, or if you wanna put it in the computer, please do it. That was a real dead camp. In Gunskirchen, there was so bad, the mud that you couldn't even walk. And right there, if somebody couldn't stand, sat down, you never got up there. Every night, dead bodies were taken out and full of lies already. If we seen someone laying and his jacket was, seems cleaner than mine, grabbed him by the arm, turned him over because you need, they're gonna take him away. Tell one day, the the gate was only, not a gate, the fence was only three feet high, but nobody could walk anymore. You know, it's went for you and a half, nobody walked, everybody was just sitting down in the mud and waiting for the dead, that's really The war ended because they seemed by inside, start hollering, the, the military is not around, not watching us. So a few of us started working out the gate as much we could. Climbing out the gate, we walked up to a, a main street. There was sand. I laid down on the sand, and a tank stopped. And they took a big, have the container, the can, like the can. He opened up a can with, I guess, hamburger meat. He threw it down. We were two or three of us laying in the sand on the side and looking at the, at the main street. So I grabbed, I walked, not walked, climbed over to the meat. I grabbed a handful of meat with sand for the last thing I remember. I woke up in Munich Hospital. I mean, I, I didn't know what happened. They must have picked me up and I wind up in Munich Hospital with typhoids. And then they started rehab me. Later on, they sent me closer to my home. My uncle came around, took me took me out, took me home, and I find my sister. They sent me to a, to Budapest. Budapest was the other rehab. They started rehabbing me till my uncle came, took me home, but my mom, my dad, sister, my younger brother was not home anymore. And then I became a little bit stronger. 
and from there later on I wind up in Israel in the army. I was there for 10 years in the army from 48 till 59. Till 59 I came to United States and after about a month I became a businessman. I had one gas station, you know, where Philadelphia on the Sea Line Avenue. Got married and today we got three kids, four grandchildren, seven great-grandchildren. And life goes on and I'm getting close to 90s. That's it. That was my story. Michael Herskovitz was a native of Czechoslovakia and was a teenager when he was an eyewitness to history's darkest hour. He now lives in Philadelphia with his wife. He was a speaker at the 29th Annual Teen Symposium on the Holocaust in Scranton, sponsored by the Holocaust Education Resource Center. You are listening to Special Edition on Entercom Communications. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com.